Well, hello and welcome. It's been another fairly normal week here on planet Earth. I tell you what, if you're up for some adventure, stay there. Let's leave. Let's travel across the universe in a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name is Dan. This is the show where we explore the galaxy, the solar system, everything out there and down here on Earth. We try and find out all the science secrets that are lurking somewhere that nobody has ever looked before. This week, we'll learn about a brand new show that uses giant insects to help you learn how to take care of the planet. It's on at the Story Museum and Daniel Clark, who is in charge of it, is on to tell us more. And really, there's a beautiful quote that I want to share with you, which is by a writer called Bell Hooks, which is, what we cannot imagine cannot come into being. And I think all of this, all of the movement that needs to happen right now needs to start with our imagination. And you can take a trip to the smartest school in the solar system, Deep Space High. For the last few weeks, we've been learning about plans to get to Mars. And it turns out the mission has already begun. 16th of October, Schiaparelli was ejected from the orbiter towards the red planet. It coasted towards its destination, entered the Martian atmosphere at 21,000 kilometres per hour and began to decelerate using aero braking and a parachute and then thrusters. And I've got your questions to answer this week. They are on why the Earth is so hot when maybe it should be cool and also we'll hear about really old dogs too. It's coming up in a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's kick things off with your science in the news. Now, black bears can be dangerous beasts. And when one black bear walked into an American bakery recently, everyone was pretty terrified for their life. Turned out they needn't have been. The bear instead devoured 60 cupcakes. 60! Six zero cupcakes! I can barely manage four, really. Before being frightened off in case it was still hungry when they were all gone and there were only humans left. Now, bears, this is amazing because bears tend to stay to their own habitats. They don't normally get so aggressive. So the fact that it was so hungry to venture into the human world, maybe it says something that it's struggling to eat in the wild. Also, experts have been studying a part of the ocean floor where deep-sea mining is planned, and they found a lot of strange creatures. Many of them are completely new to us. There are weird worms and brightly coloured sea cucumbers and corals. They're all down there in the Clarion-Clipperton zone of the Pacific Ocean. There are more than 5,000 different creatures there, and now experts are weighing up with this new ecosystem whether they can carry on mining or they need to protect the life that is down there. I I think mining is, well, it's still quite important because we've not fully found uh, a way to use reusable energy all of the time. So mining still does need to happen if it's for energy, but perhaps if it's to keep an ecosystem alive, we do need to think about that. And finally, this is incredible time travelling. Scientists in Britain have found 4,000-year-old plague DNA. It's the oldest evidence of the disease in the country. The bacteria, Yersinia pestis, which causes the plague, has been found in three human remains. Experts used remains of teeth still buried in the ground because these can trap 
uh, the DNA of infectious diseases so you know what has been there before. It's like a little timeline. And scientists say that this disease was probably brought into Britain by humans expanding across Europe. Now, we've seen throughout history that there are these these big events. uh, There are uh, illnesses that kind of take over, really. And learning about how it's happened in the past is really important for figuring out what we might need to do in the future. All right, then. It's time to spin the wheel of the A to Z of engineering. Uh, I love catching up with Engers every week. He is our engineering expert, uh, and he knows everything about why things are made, who made them, who came up with them, why they're still useful today. And for the last few weeks, he's been taking us through every single letter of the engineering alphabet, from A for acoustics all the way through to Z for, well, zoos, I guess. Let's find out what letter we're learning about this week and spin the wheel. Hello and welcome to another Engineering Academy, where we're exploring an A to Z of everything engineering. Let's spin the wheel and see where we're engineering today. Over to Engers to spin the wheel. It's T. And T is for tunnels. Thanks, Engers. There are thousands of tunnels across the UK, some hundreds of years old. The longest tend to be railway tunnels. The Severn Tunnel is the longest mainline tunnel, and also one of the oldest. It opened in 1886 and is 4.4 miles long. The Northern Line under London is longer, running 17 miles between East Finchley and Morden. And the longest of all is the Channel Tunnel at 23 miles, but half is in France. So... What is a tunnel anyway? Put simply, it's a space under or through an obstacle. That could be for traffic under a busy city, a high-speed rail line linking cities across the country, or a way to hide utilities under the ground, things like electricity cables or water and sewage pipes. How one constructs a tunnel depends on its length and size, and also on the ground and groundwater conditions through which the tunnel is built. Tunnel engineering is a specialized subset of civil engineering, Tunnel engineers need to have a deep understanding of different types of soil and rocks, how grounds behave, and the interaction between the ground and structure built inside. And to dig down into the details, here's Engers. There are two basic types of tunnel construction. Cut and cover, where tunnels are constructed by digging out a shallow trench and then covering it over, and bored tunnels. No, they're not boring. They're just tunnels which are constructed by digging out without removing the ground above using equipment like tunnel boring machines. The technical version of a giant mole. We went to HS2 to find out more. Over half of the HS2 route between London and the West Midlands will be in tunnels or cuttings, helping to reduce the visual impacts in the landscape. They are using 10 giant tunnel boring machines, or TBMs, to dig 103 kilometres of tunnels between London and Crewe at depths of up to 90 metres. In total, 130 million tonnes of earth will be excavated. That's enough to fill Wembley Stadium 15 times. The rotating cutter head at the front of the TBM bores the tunnel, installing the round concrete segments that form the tunnel walls as it goes. Each TBM is a self-contained underground factory, up to 170 metres in length. That's nearly 
1.5 times the length of a football pitch and weighing 2,000 tons, the equivalent of 340 African bush elephants. They dig the tunnel, line it with concrete wall segments and grout them into place as it moves forward. A crew of 17 keeps the machines running, supported by a team of over 100 people managing logistics and maintaining the smooth progress of the tunnelling operation. Each tunnel requires tens of thousands of precision-engineered, fibre-reinforced concrete wall segments, which are all made on site. HS2 are also building tunnels using the cut-and-cover method of construction, with trees and shrubs planted on top to become green tunnels. First, a cutting is excavated where the green tunnel is needed. The excavated earth is kept close by, as it will be needed later on. In the second stage, a concrete floor is laid, and then pre-cast segments are installed, forming the structure of the tunnel. The final stage occurs after the tunnels have been installed. The earth that was removed is replaced on top of the new structure. New trees and shrubs are planted, and the tunnel blends into the landscape, connecting wildlife habitats along the line of the route. Unlike TBM-created tunnels, which are circular, green tunnels are designed as an M-shaped double arch, each the height of two double-decker buses. And instead of casting the concrete segments on site, they're made in bulk in Derbyshire to speed up construction and improve efficiency. They're slotted together to create a double arch, one central pier, two side walls and two roof slabs, the largest weighing 43 tonnes. Concrete and steel are some of the biggest sources of carbon emissions within the construction industry. And by reducing the amount of both materials needed for the tunnel, this lighter weight modular approach is expected to more than halve the amount of carbon embedded in the structure. It also requires less people and equipment on site, improving safety and reducing disruption for residents. Thanks, Engers. The scale of these mega-projects is almost unimaginable, no matter how much experience you have. If you'd like to find out more and meet the team at EKFB who are building the green tunnels, head over to the Fun Kids website. And that's our take on the letter T. It's been terrific! If you'd like to check out some other types of engineering, why not check out telecommunications, television, textile or transport engineering? Engineer Academy More with Engers and the Engineering Academy next week on the show. Uh, right now, I am the expert because I, it's time to do the questions. Every week, you send over your science questions in a couple of ways. Something that you've been wondering, that you've been pondering, maybe something you heard that's keeping you up late at night. You're racking your brains thinking, how is this even possible? Well, let me do all the digging for you. There's a few ways you can ask a question. One of them is by leaving it as a voice note at funkidslive.com or on the free Fun Kids app, just like this from William. Hi, my name is William, and my question is, how come the centre of the Earth is very, very hot when cool air goes low? Bye! William, there's a lot to break down in this. How is the centre of the Earth so hot when cool air moves downwards? Well, right inside the Earth, in the centre, you have the core. In that, you've got a lot of radioactive elements that are breaking down. There's also heat left in it from when the Earth was being made right at the very start of the solar system. And all that energy bustling around in there makes a lot of heat. 
Also, when the sun's heat reaches the earth, it gets trapped. It gets held by the atmosphere, by the buildings, by the plants, by the grass on the ground. It sucks it in and it lets it out through the day. It holds a lot of air, which warms the air around it. So that's why it feels quite hot in the centre of the earth. And even though colder air is denser than warmer air, which makes it drop, it makes the warm air rise, uh, we get a lot of that air lower to the ground. As you get higher up, there's much less air up there. The pressure's lower. The air is thinner, which makes it hard for any air up there to trap heat, really, which makes it cold as you get higher up. And because heat is stored down on the ground, even though that hot air is rising, it feels warm, really warm sometimes down here on the surface of the earth. So there's a lot going on, William. I hope that's helped you a little bit. Let's get one that's been left as a review over on Apple Podcasts. If you search for the Fun Kids Science Weekly there, you can say hello. Joe wants to know, what was the first dog on Earth? Well, paleontologists and archaeologists who dig up the ground, they study uh, bones and fossils from creatures way back have figured out that about 60 million years ago, there was a creature called Mycus. It was small, a bit like a weasel. It lived in what is now Asia. And over these last millions of years, it's evolved into many creatures like dogs that we have today, kind of jackals, wolves, foxes and more. And then about 30 million years ago, we get really what is the first true dog. We call that Kynodictus, quite a long animal with a long tail and a brushy, bushy coat. So that's three million years ago. And about 20,000 years ago, uh, wolves figured out that if they followed tribes that were travelling around the world, they could eat the food that these tribes left behind. And this process over the last 20,000 years has led to dogs gradually being domesticated and kept as pets like we do today. So there you go, Joe. That's pretty much from the first dog right the way to where we are. Dogs as pets in 2023. Thank you very much for the question. If you have something you want answered on the show, I'd love to hear you say it. I'd love to hear you star in the podcast. The best way is by leaving it as a voice note on the free Fun Kids app or get to funkidslive.com on the Science Weekly page there and you can click the big record button to let me know what you're thinking. Let's get to this week's Dangerous Dan then. And for the last few weeks, we've been looking at different incredible defence mechanisms that exist in the animal kingdom. And, you know, just when you think you've discovered them all, more incredible ones pop up. This week, we're looking at the elephant hawk moth. Now, the moth itself is striking. It's normally golden olive with pink bars stretching across their wings and body. You normally find them kind of in the spring, summer, from May to August, all around the UK. But before they become a moth, they are caterpillars, right? That's how that cycle of life works. And it's the caterpillar that we're really focusing on this week. The caterpillar is normally a brownish-green colour with some stripes that run across their body and a few spots over it. Here's what's amazing. If it senses a predator nearby, another hungry beast, it has an astonishing way of defending itself. The caterpillar puffs itself up, makes itself look really big. This makes the patches near the top of its body, we spoke about those spots, it makes them bulge. So those white patches look like eyes. So just imagine that. You've got those big, fake, glistening white eyes on the brown colour of its body, the stripes on its back. It looks huge. This caterpillar makes itself look just like a snake. 
to defend itself, to scare off a predator. This small caterpillar makes itself so huge and terrifying like a python. And that's why the elephant hawk moth so brilliantly cunning and smart across the animal kingdom. It means it goes straight on to our dangerous Dan list. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. This week we're hearing about a brilliant new idea that helps you find out a bit more about the world around you, maybe helps calm your climate worries down too, because a load of ants have taken over the Story Museum here in the UK over in Oxford. But they're like maybe a bit bigger than you might think. We can find out more with Daniel Clark, who is museum curator there. Daniel, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Dan. So this exhibition is called Brilliant. Tell us about the first moment that you remember the idea for this bubbling up. Well, we really wanted to make an exhibition that talked about positive things that people can do around the climate crisis that's happening right now. We wanted something that was unapologetically positive and something that was a really fun adventure, not just something that could feel like you're just being talked to, but you're instead, you know, you're stepping inside the story. And so we thought, what happens if we go really small? So we thought about Aesop's, Aesop's fables, the ant and the grasshopper, where the ants worked hard all summer um, while the grasshoppers told stories and listened to music. And then when winter came and the grasshoppers asked the ants for help and some of their food and shelter, the ants were too busy to help. So we took that as a starting point and then thought about how we could sort of pull it out. So now what we've got in the in the uh, exhibition is a moment that you step into where climate change has, has hit the anthill, so winter hasn't left, supplies are running low and there's smoke in the air. And so you have to become an ant and step onto a journey um, to find out how to fix your anthill and save and save it. And that's primarily by learning about brilliant stories, but also by meeting giant cardboard insects who will help, um, help you on your journey. Tell us more about these cardboard insects. It, it's fantastic with an exhibition that is all about climate change and our worries about it, that you're using recyclable materials. But what are they like? How did you make them? Who did you get to help? We worked with a writer called Chitra Soundar. I helped develop some of the insect characters. Um, and she spent some time at one of the natural history museums here in Oxford um, to look at their kind of collections of bugs and researched which bugs we should bring to life. And um, we wanted insects that were from, from the British Isles. Um, and then we worked with a great illustrator called Barry Falls, who sort of designed what the insects should look like. He does loads of picture books and those kind of things, but also editorial work. Um, and he also did the illustrations for Dara, Dara McNulty's Wild Child, which are like beautiful, intricate drawings of insects. So he could do everything from that to sort of you know, more sort of much more picture book like stuff. And then we worked with a cardboard sculptor who's a woman called Lottie Smith who makes these incredible sort of inventive big cardboard sculptures um, who then interpreted Barry's designs for them and turn them into 3D objects. And these things are big. You know, you are, as you walk into the exhibition, you are the size of an ant. You even have to wear a set of antennae, which makes the insects talk. But we'll talk more about that later. But you, so you're at the same scale as a sort of giant dung beetle or, um, or a, a huge bumblebee that's talking to you. So we really wanted to create that kind of sense of magic. And we used cardboard because it's a lovely material, but also because it kind of, it's a recyclable material. It's something that we often, we think of as waste, but actually it's incredible um, as, a, as, a, um, as a material for using for sculpture. Now you're from and doing this at the Story Museum, which is over in Oxford, which is a museum and a place all about 
stories. So not necessarily science. You've kind of jumped into the, the, the climate change and climate anxiety. How, how much did you need to learn as a team about getting everything right? How did you make sure that you were doing that properly with speaking to people? It was, it's been a bit of a journey. I mean, obviously, here at the Story Museum, we specialise in stories. We're um, a sort of 3D love letter to children's stories. Um, and it's a space where you can step into, you know, everything, everywhere from the bottom of the rabbit hole in, in Alice in Wonderland right through um, to a giant sort of choose-your-own-adventure room. So it's, we, we take quite a playful and imaginative approach to story. Um, but when we were dealing with this topic specifically, we realised that it wasn't our speciality, and we didn't want to get anything wrong. So part of that was part of the process was reaching out to um, climate advisors, and we had um, four different climate advisors who helped us shape both the script, um, but also help create sort of resources and, and calls to action for people after their visit. Um, and we were some amazing people from Friends of the Earth, um, some of the one of the most notable cl- young climate activists. We worked with someone who's a specialist in eco-anxiety um, and someone who's a specialist in stories for, for the natural world. So it was a real, that was a really great process. And then also, as I mentioned, just the insects for us, we ended up working with different natural history museums to really make sure that all members of the creative team had inputs. We worked with um, specialists at Ulster Museum um, in Northern Ireland, Great North Museum up in North um, in Newcastle, and also the Oxford Museum of Natural History here, because we wanted to make sure that we were honouring the insects that we were bringing to life. You mentioned earlier about the ants and the creatures talking to us. How does that work? <laughs> okay, so um, it, it basically, the whole experience is like, in some ways, like a giant video game because you're in control of which bits of the story and which bits you hear. So when visitors come into the exhibition, um, as they walk into the main space, firstly, they, the perspective changes, so they become the size of an ant. And then we've created these incredible cardboard antennae. So you, can, you put on a set of cardboard antennae, and in one of the antennae is a secret, uh, a secret chip that basically as you walk around the exhibitions you uh, the exhibition you have to touch one of your antennae against the this um a pink flower and that brings the insects to life so we've got some amazing voices who've given voice to these different insects. We've got people like, who would you know? Okay, so we've got um, people like Sir Derek Jacobi, who's been in many Ooh. movies and is one of the, the country's great actors. Um, we've got Izzy Sutty, who has voiced many a show, um, who's the voice of one of the ants. Um, Ellis James, who you might know, yeah. um, is, is the gl- voice of the glow worm. We've got Julian Clary as the voice of a superworm. Wow. Um, we've got Nick Cope, that some of you might know from, from his fantastic TV show on CBeebies, um, is the voice of one of the operators. And we've even got Miss Moneypenny, Samantha Bond, um, take, giving, giving flight to one of our butterflies. So there's an amazing cast of voices who've got involved with this. Um, and we're really excited to share it with everyone. Now, you're from the Story Museum. How important is it when we think about uh, the changing world and people's anxieties about the climate crisis that, 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 we, that we tell this and that we ease fears and we reflect what's going on with stories? Mm. 
Uh, it's hugely important. <laughs> you know, stories sh- shape our world. I mean, this year, all of the themes that we're looking at is, is stories to save the world. And really, there's a beautiful quote that I want to share with you, which is by a writer called Bell Hooks, which is, what we cannot imagine cannot come into being. And I think all of this, all of the movement that needs to happen right now needs to start with our imagination. We need to see that it's possible. And so the way that this piece is being constructed and this exhibition has been put together is very much we're talking about the things that are already happening. So all of the steps that we're kind of recommending or the different insects are recommending people take are things that are already happening. We keep getting told the story that climate change is just overwhelming and we can't do anything about it. But we just need to keep going. <laughs> we need to be positive and keep going and and things do make a difference there's so much going on it's all at the story museum which is over in oxford uh daniel if someone wants to go how do they find you where do they look where do they get tickets just tell us that if you visit storymuseum.org.uk that's storymuseum.org.uk you can find all the details of how to get there our opening hours um, and our and our address and we look forward to seeing you before we finish up this week, are you up for a little adventure? Morbid life here on planet Earth? You want to head up to the smartest school in the solar system? Well, that's what we've been doing uh, for the last few weeks now, getting lessons at Deep Space High, just out between kind of Saturn and Uranus. It's got a brilliant view of the solar system. And recently we've been learning with Professor Pulsar all about Mars, all about the red planet, hearing about the ExoMars rover, which is trying to explore everything there, looking for earlier signs of perhaps life. And today we're finding out more about the Aurora program as a whole and how it turns out the mission has already begun. Deep Space High, Destination Mars. Welcome to Aurora, and travel to Deep Space High. The school is space, but hurry, because lessons are about to begin. So, we've been learning all about the ExoMars rover. Can anyone remember when it'll actually reach the red planet? Next year? Not quite that soon. The ExoMars rover isn't planned to set a wheel on Mars until 2020, but that doesn't mean the mission hasn't begun. So the rover is still on Earth, right? Ah, I want to see it in action. Well, it won't be long and the mission is very much underway. It started in 2016 with two separate crafts, a trace gas orbiter to stay above the planet in orbit and a landing module called Schiaparelli to, well, land. Schiaparelli? That's a strange name. I'll have you know he was a very famous astronomer from Italy. He drew maps of Mars which helped many other astronomers. So let's take a look at his namesake. The orbiter and Schiaparelli were launched together on the 14th of March 2016 using a proton rocket. By taking advantage of the closeness of the Earth to Mars, the journey only took seven months. They arrived into the orbit of Mars in October 2016. Let's see what happened. Seven months is really fast. It certainly was. Usually it takes longer. It all depends on the orbits of the planets. The shorter the journey, the cheaper it is, as you need a lot less fuel. Three days before reaching the atmosphere of Mars, on the 16th of October, Schiaparelli was ejected from the orbiter towards the red planet. It coasted towards its destination, entered the Martian atmosphere at 21,000 kilometres per hour and began to decelerate using aero braking and a parachute and then thrusters. 
at Mission Control, they waited to hear that the lander had safely reached the surface. Uh-oh, doesn't sound good. Unfortunately, they were waiting for a long time. It seems likely that the lander had malfunctioned and was thought to have crash-landed. That's terrible. Well, it was certainly disappointing. But, as we learned in our very first lesson, over half of all Earth missions to Mars have ended in failure. Schiaparelli was made to test out the landing procedure. So, they'll have learned a lot from what went wrong. From data received back from the lander, they know most of the processes worked just fine. A small calculation resulted in the wrong result, and this caused the lander to slow down too quickly. So the whole thing was a bust? Don't be silly! You've forgotten about the Trace Gas Orbiter. That's still operational. That's right. It will perform detailed remote observations of the Martian atmosphere, searching for evidence of gases of possible biological importance, such as methane and its degradation products. Its mission will last for almost two years. After that, it will be used to help relay data to and from the ExoMars rover in 2020. So that's when the ExoMars rover will be landing on the surface, right? Yes, Sam. They can learn from Schiaparelli how to give the rover the very best chance of making it safely to the surface. And the orbiter will have helped too to find a safe spot and one with interesting things to examine. And that mission will help the one that follows. Maybe taking humans to Mars. Spot on, Sam. Learning from past missions helps the next ones have the best chances of success. Often, this means many different countries working together. Maybe one day different planets will work together. Hey, just like Deep Space High. Deep Space High, Destination Mars. That is it for this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. Uh, thank you so much for listening. If you have anything sciencey that you want answered on the show, make sure you leave it as a voice note for me on the free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com. Now, you've had some brilliant series today. We've had the A to Z of Engineering, Deep Space High. We've got tons more that you can find wherever you get your podcasts. Google, Apple, Spotify, all of that. It's on our app too and at funkidslive.com. And Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station from the UK. Listen all over the country on your DAB digital radio and at funkidslive.com. <laughs> 